Well, there are moments uh, in life where you get to taste just how good life can be. Uh, moments where everything just seems so very, very good. Good in the deepest sense of the word. Moments that you can't help but look back on and smile. Uh, there are many moments like that in life. One that uh, sticks in my memory is December 23rd, the year 2000, the day I got married. Uh, all our closest friends were there, and even more importantly, she was there. <laughs> it was a great moment, that moment as she walks down the aisle and you see her, all the, all the anticipation that has led up to that moment, and you get to taste how good life can be. And the rest of the day was good, the celebration that came with us. I'm reminded of a C.S. Lewis quote where he said, there's a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. Life is very good. And right at the heart of life's goodness are relationships. Uh, There are moments, not just uh, in marriage, there are moments of friendship, aren't there, where we look back on them and we cherish them. Close friends that we've done life with over many years, friends who remember what we remember. The group of guys that I'm closest to, I've met with for now, close on 20 years, I've got thousands of memories of sharing life with them, laughing with them till your insides feel like they're going to explode. Lots of meals, music, good times. Life is good. Relationships are good. But that life is so good and relationships are so good makes death all the more hard to deal with, doesn't it? Of my group of friends, uh, this group that I've met up with for many years, one is missing. He's been missing since February 25, 1998, Greg. That was the day he died. And there is not a day where I don't think about him or miss him. I have his photo uh, on my study to remind me that I miss him. And for the most part, humanity knows that death is no friend of ours. It takes what is very good, life and the relationships of life and as 2 Samuel 14 says, it spills them out all over the ground never to be recovered. The Bible knows how good life can be and so when it speaks of death it never speaks of it lightly or glibly. It is as 1 Corinthians 15 says, our last great enemy. And yet tonight as we come to Mark 12 again, we come to a group of people who seem to hold both life and death very lightly. Life is good, yes, to an extent, but death, well, at best it's an interesting after-dinner topic and that's about it. This group who hold life and death so loosely are like those who've come to Jesus in recent weeks that we've seen in Mark's Gospel. They come to trap him with a question. Their question is all about life and death. A question that they think is a light one and yet they are met by a passionate, powerful and wonderful answer from our Saviour's lips. So let's have a look at it together. Mark 12, starting at verse 18 on page 1017 of the Bibles. This group that comes to Jesus we're introduced to in verse 18 of Mark 12 the latest group trying to come to Jesus to bring him down, to trap him in his own words. We're told they're the Sadducees, a small group, 
a group of Jewish families into whose hands most of the land had fallen. They'd gained not only control of most of the land, but they'd gained control of the ruling Jewish body, the Sanhedrin. And they were the group that stood to gain the most from Roman occupation. They wanted Jesus gone. They had financial power, religious power and political power. They were the elite. And instead of them by a historian of the time, Josephus, not only did they have this, but they were deeply worldly in their behaviour. To quote him, he said, Even among themselves they were boorish in their behaviour and in their conversation with their peers they were as rude as aliens. They're the rich, the powerful, the who's who and yet they're living totally irresponsibly. You know, like the modern materialist, the, the Hollywood star lurching from rehab to jail back to rehab to the party. The sort of whatever goes lifestyle, that was the Sadducees. And to be honest, I suspect the reason they were living this way is not too different from the Hollywood star or the modern materialist. Have a look at verse 18. And here you see the key distinctive of their doctrine, their system of belief. The Sadducees were those who say there is no resurrection. Now the resurrection was an absolute key plank in popular Jewish belief. It was a very foundation piece of their faith. They knew God was the creator of life. They knew he'd made life to be very good and they knew that death was no friend of life. It was, as Job says, an object of fear or as Isaiah 38 says, the end of relationships, the king of terrors. But the Jewish people knew this of their God, that he was a greater king than the king of terrors and that part of his covenant promise to them was that he would redeem them, he would rescue them even from death. At a typical Jewish funeral, these words were said in prayer, Blessed be you, O Lord, who raises the dead. And then as the body was lowered into the ground, they would say, He will cause you to arise. Blessed be he who keeps his word and raises the dead. They knew this of their God, the Redeemer, who had promised himself to them and part of that promise was eternal life. But the Sadducees, who, who were a group of people who accepted only the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, thought this was some fanciful later idea that had sort of been squeezed in to Jewish belief. And so they come as people who look at resurrection with derision. They come in the context of this issue of life and death, an issue of primary importance to the Jewish people but of little consequence to them. And they ask their question. Have a look in verse 19 at their question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Following a pretty typical scribal discussion 
they cite a law of Moses and then they sort of work through it uh, with an example. They cite the universally accepted Moses, the giver of the law to God's people and they cite specifically a law in Deuteronomy 25. It was a law all about continuing a name of a family. The last thing God wanted was a name of his people dying out and so he set up this law where a brother would marry his deceased brother's wife to continue their name. But the scenario they come up with on the back of this law is ridiculous. Seven brothers. Two would have sufficed to make the point. They all marry the same woman, one after another. You'd think after about the fourth or fifth brother, they'd start to think there's something not right. It's a health hazard marrying this woman. But they all did it and they all died. They've come up with this ridiculous scenario and I suspect the reason they have is that this is how they view the resurrection. It's ridiculous. It's unlikely. And it's problematic, especially when you come up with a scenario like this. What do you do in the resurrection when you've got a situation like this, Jesus, they say? And of course it's a disingenuous question as well, isn't it? They don't believe the resurrection. And so once again we have Jesus cornered in a dilemma. To their minds he must choose between uh, having just said earlier in Mark 12 in verses 10 and 11 that God would raise him from the dead or contradicting his earlier teaching about how valuable marriage is. He had to choose one or the other. Either way they thought he would look a fool. But Jesus' response once again turns things around completely Have a look at verse 24 onwards. He's not the one who finds this situation confusing or problematic at all. It's very clear. If there's a lack of clarity, it is from the Sadducees. And so he turns things back on them. People who based their whole doctrine on the Pentateuch, they were people of the book. They knew it back to front, pure in their doctrine. They had things sussed out. But Jesus' answer pulls the very foundations out from under them. You see how he begins his response and ends it the same way, verse 24 and verse 27. When it comes to their doctrine, when it comes to what they believe, what they know of the truth, they are wrong, badly wrong. Literally the word he uses in both verses means to wander around aimlessly. They're lost. Here are the elite of the Jewish people, the smartest minds, the rich, the powerful, the party set, and Jesus says of them, you are lost, badly lost. Questions of life and death, questions about the resurrection were of little significance to them, just just an after-dinner topic. It was a joke. That's why they presented their question this way. But as far as Jesus is concerned, this is no joke. There is no more important question than you could ask than whether there is a resurrection from the dead. And as far as he's concerned, if you get that answer wrong, you are stupendously wrong. Let me illustrate why Jesus is so incensed by their question. Let's go to another part of the Bible, Corinthians 15. Hear these wonderful words from the end of Corinthians 15. Paul says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? 
O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel that we have stood up and said we believe together is that Christ has been raised Lord and King. It's news of an extraordinary victory, isn't it? An enemy has been defeated. That's the gospel. A very great rescue has occurred. Jesus Christ has powerfully overcome the enemy and those who trust him share in that victory. Do you see the enemy that's been defeated? Death. Destroyed. Kicked to pieces by him. Do you see what makes death so serious in Corinthians 15? Sin. You see, death is not just the end of life, that's bad enough, but death is divine judgment. And more than that, it is the path to divine judgment. The sting of death is sin. And what makes sin so serious that it deserves death is the law of God, the law that these Sadducees cherish. That's their book. That's, that's the thing they hold dear. This law points to them and says sin is serious and that is why there is death. You see, the law says that our sin is not just a sort of undesirable behaviour towards God, like a, a sort of a bad smell he, he wants to get rid of. No, it is human defiance against God's right requirements. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over sin and death is huge news, isn't it? You see, only if you've never been touched by the destruction that death brings would you fail to see the question of the resurrection as a big question. For if there's a resurrection, then God has done it, hasn't he? He has found a way to deal with sin and death and judgment. And that's big, big, big news. You think this is a joke, says Jesus? You are wrong. You are badly wrong. You see, to deny the resurrection is to either still be stuck in your sins and still facing death, or worse, is to kid yourself that sin has no consequences, that judgment isn't coming, which leads to the sort of living we see amongst the Sadducees. Now, as far as Jesus is concerned, the only way you could go so badly off course to be so badly wrong as this is if you lose sight of the scriptures if you lose sight of God's power you see that in verse 24 to deny the resurrection you'd have to have smashed the compass that God has given us his very word and headed off on your own steam only to find yourself badly lost that's the accusation he lays at their feet it's important to note in verse 24 when he says you do not know the power the, the scriptures and you do not know God's power he's talking about the same thing to not know the scriptures is to not know his power which is where he reveals it you see the Sadducees only had their five books Genesis to Deuteronomy and the vast majority of those five books speak about God's power to rescue to redeem his people from captivity. Jesus says, you know the story. I'm sure you know it back to front. But you don't see that that means that God is mighty to save you against any enemy. 
And the same is true of our exodus, the one that Corinthians 15 speaks of, the story of how Christ has come right to the very heart of our captivity, our sin and death, and has rescued us. We can know that story back to front, but you deny the resurrection and you take any power away from it. And so Jesus, pointing the finger at the Sadducees and saying this of them, goes on to explain the symptoms that issue from such a massive problem. And he names two for us. He says, if you don't know the scriptures, if you don't know the power that they reveal, then when it comes to the truth of the resurrection, you'll fail in two ways. You'll fail to believe the promise of the resurrection and you'll fail to understand the promise of the resurrection. Let's have a think about those two now. Firstly, failing to believe the promise of the resurrection. Have a look at verse 26 where we see this first aspect come out. Jesus says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. It's a further rebuke, isn't it, against the Sadducees. They've only got five books. They'd know it back to front and Jesus can still say to them, have you not read this bit? You know, the bit about Moses and the burning bush, you've probably heard about it in Sunday school. It's hard to miss. Jesus turns their attention to these scriptures that he says they don't know and restricting himself to their book, their five books, he points to Exodus 3, this well-known story of Moses and the burning bush and he talks about verse 6 I am the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob Jesus arguing for the resurrection appeals to God's promise to his people and his faithfulness to that promise he points to this crucial moment when God reveals his name I am and therefore his nature as Israel's covenant redeemer God says to his people I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob now there's two ways you can respond to that scripture the first way is the Sadducees way who know nothing of God's power hear those words spoken to Moses and know that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are long since dust and ashes but for Jesus and those who accept the word of Jesus, when God says of himself, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he is also saying, I was and I will always be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of the living. I keep my promise to redeem them forever. You see, if God's nature is to be the God of the living, as it says in verse 27 of Mark 12, if his nature is to rescue them even from death, then it's impossible for anyone of whom he calls himself God to be dead. Do you believe that? It's ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men that do not exist. Because God says, I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob they must be living says Jesus the resurrection is a reality you see if Abraham is nothing more than dust and ashes now then God cannot now at this moment be their God he was 
but he's not now. But he is not the God of those who do not exist. For Jesus, it's a logical argument, but there's more to it than that. These three patriarchs, these three huge men of God's people, enjoyed a special covenant relationship with their God. A relationship that was so big, so eternal, that it could not end. And it demanded a relationship even beyond death. God had promised it to them. You see, this covenant relationship between God and Abraham was not one that there was sort of two parties coming together and as long as Abraham was around, it worked. No, this was God promising it of himself. This is picked up for us in Hebrews chapter 11. Speaking of Abraham, it says, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then again in verse 13, All these people, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And in verse 16, Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, the patriarchs knew that the blessing of the covenant was eternal. They looked forward to life beyond even death. God's promises to us are eternal. They are true. They are powerful. God is the God of the living, not the dead, says Jesus. But as far as Jesus is concerned, not only does their question expose a failure to believe that, but it also exposes a failure to understand the dimensions of the promise of the resurrection. And I think that's our danger too. It's easy to stand as we have done and say in the creed, I believe in the resurrection. We know all the verses in the New Testament that testify to it. We've seen Jesus raise Lazarus. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead. We know it. We know it to be true. But do we understand what God is promising when he promises to raise the dead? This ridiculous scenario that they come up with in the end comes down to a simple question in verse 23, a question about marriage. But as far as Jesus is concerned, when it comes to the rising of the dead, such a question is irrelevant. When the dead rise, he says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now I've got to be honest, the first time I read this verse, when I came across this passage as a Christian, I was a fair bit disappointed. I like being married. I like it a lot. And uh, to be honest, the, the reason for that law back in Deuteronomy, the idea of continuing your name, was not why I got married. I, I don't have such delusions of grandeur that that's what it was about, to keep the Reese name going. Now that I have a son, there's hope for another generation. That's not what it was about. I, I love being married. It's wonderful. It is a gift from God. And so how can anything so very, very good be irrelevant in heaven? Well, in response to that, it's important to remember two things that I think come out of this passage. That God knows relationships matter. And he knows it more than we could possibly ever know. And that God also knows that death is no friend of such relationships, more than we ever will. And so to understand the resurrection hope, you need to understand two big things. Firstly, you need to know that the hope of the resurrection is the hope 
of new relationship. Jesus says we will be like the angels. The great purpose and the centre of our life in heaven is intimate relationship with God. That's what it's about. That's our great hope. Glorifying the God who we will dwell with in heaven. That is what life is about. Resurrection brings us into a close relationship with God in a way that supersedes even the best marriage, the best friendship you could possibly imagine. They are all just a hint, just a whisper of what God has in mind for us in heaven, enjoying him. You know, I used to think the best thing about heaven would be seeing Greg again. I used to think that maybe God had taken him as some sort of collateral to keep me trusting him till the end so that I could see him again. And if Liz was to die before me, it would be hard not to feel that way about her. And I know some of you probably feel that way. But the burning heart of the resurrection promise, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that there is coming a day when I will know God, even as I am fully known by him, when I will be with him. Hear John Piper's take on this. He says, and I quote, Isn't God already with us? Jesus said, I will be with you until the very end of the age. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So what does he mean here? Well, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Away. That too is true. Away from the Lord. We walk by faith not by sight. He says, how many little children have said, but Dad, I can't see him. I can't see Jesus. I I can't see God. It's hard to believe. Piper says, don't ever, as you sit on the edge of your bed, say in a quick and glib way to your son, oh, you'll get over that. That doesn't matter. It's not important. Of course it's important. Because you know what? I want to see him. I'm not satisfied, are you? With an invisible God, an invisible Jesus? If he said to you, that's it, that's all you get, I'd say no, not enough. And nor should we be satisfied because the resurrection promise is as Revelation 22 verse 4 says, we shall see his face. That's the first thing you need to remember to understand the resurrection hope. And the final thing is that the promise of the resurrection is the promise of no more death. And this is where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, get things so horribly wrong. In the resurrection, not only will I know God as I am known by him, but death will die. We will be like the angels, says Jesus. The mighty rescue of the Israelite exodus that Jesus pointed back to in this passage is just a hint, just a whisper of the rescue plan he had for us in Christ. The rescue even from death. As Corinthians 15 testifies, death has been swallowed up in victory. I remember reading uh, this short news story about a young Christian guy in Sydney last year who'd grown up not far from where I lived. It said this, The body of an Australian missionary has been found at a waterfall in Uganda where he went missing earlier this week. 
The body of 26-year-old James Coulter was found wedged in an underwater cave near the Mustiana Falls where he slipped and fell into the water on Monday. The missionary had been working with orphans at an African enterprise Christian mission in Uganda and Kenya for two months. He was due to return home to Sydney the next week. Mr Coulter was visiting the falls with a British friend when he lost his footing taking a photograph and was washed over the waterfall onto rocks 15 metres below. An Australian embassy official from Nairobi was present when the body was found. As I read that, the thing that struck me is that the Australian official was not the only one there when that body was pulled out of that water. No, his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was there too. And he was mighty to save. He raised James up that day. Glorious, imperishable, like his Saviour. That's the Gospel. Jesus said of his Father, He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. So let me ask you, is he your God? He's mine. And I know the vast majority of people here, he is their God. And he is the God of my friend Greg. Not was, is. And he raised him up as well. He took his battered, broken body out of a bashed up car and he raised him up, imperishable, glorious. You know what, I can't wait to see my friend and to give him a hug. But when I meet him, the thing he'll say to me is, brother, come and meet our king, our wonderful, mighty, powerful, trustworthy king because now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for that old order has passed away. Maranatha, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's...